Welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road, a church with congregations in Guildford, Woking and Aldershot in the UK. To find out more about who we are and what we're up to, please visit us online at EmmausRoad.com. Good morning. Lovely to be with you this morning. So yes, today we're going to be carrying on our series looking at wisdom. And today we're going to be looking at friendship. So why don't you turn to the person next to you and just say, I'm glad that you're here. And so hopefully... Week three into this series, you're getting ahead a little bit around the nature of wisdom in the Bible. And from the first two, from Pete sharing in week one and Amy last week, you begin to realize that wisdom, as it's talked about in the Bible, isn't a rule book. It isn't like this is exactly how life works. It's more complex and nuanced than that. And I like how Amy said, wisdom in the Bible is portrayed more as a woman that you are to fall in love with than a set of rules that you are to learn. It's something to be pursued and to become infatuated with. And as I was sitting in the car going to Aldershot this morning, I was thinking about the first time I ever sat in the driver's seat of a car. If you're a driver, you might remember it, and it's your first lesson, and you sit in the driving seat, and there's just like buttons and levers everywhere, right? And the driving instructor is like, don't forget your blind spots and your bite points and all the other Bs, and you're like, how am I ever going to get my head around all of these different moving parts, right? But then you give it a few weeks, you study the highway code and, you know, you spend some time driving and all of those things and you begin to get your head around how the car works and it isn't long before you're driving and the thing that felt overwhelming, suddenly you're drinking your coffee and you're changing your music. Not me, I'm a pastor, <laughs> other people, Right? And then what's interesting is I remember the first time I went on the motorway and I remember sitting the night before like planning out the journey. You know, it's a journey I'd done many times and I know that this part of the road goes like this and I have to be in this lane and then this bit happens. And then you begin to get your head around the way that the car works and the road works. And you don't know everything that every journey is going to throw at you, but you begin to trust yourself, right? That's kind of what the Bible talks about wisdom being. You're not going to know every corner, every lane, every roundabout that gets thrown at you in life, but you begin to get your head around how it works a little bit, and you begin to trust that you know enough that you're going to be okay. You're going to have the right response, and it's not a silver bullet. Unfortunately, you still share the road with other idiots (laughs) who don't always follow the highway code quite as well as you do. But still, wisdom is beginning to get to know the way things should work. And so we're coming to today and we're jumping out of more kind of an introduction to wisdom and we're looking at a theme in wisdom, friendship. And going to make a, uh, going to be vulnerable here, going to be a little bit honest. Last time I spoke, it was epic, right? Not, not the talk was epic. (laughs) 
the theme was epic, right? We were talking about dragons and warriors and the day of Armageddon, and just, it was amazing. And then I got my teaching text for this time, and it was like, can you talk about friendship? And I was like, ah, oh, like, give me something meaty. I want to talk about like incarnation or something. But you know what? Like, I was wrong, right? Because friendship is anything but periphery. As Christians, we believe that at the centre of everything is a God who has always and will always be three in one. In perfect community. Academics call it perichoresis, the divine dance that exists at the centre of everything. And out of that divine dance and that community, all of creation happened. And so friendship, relationship is the purpose of creation and therefore the goal of redemption. It was what was taken from us, relationship with God and relationship to one another. And it's what Jesus did to restore back to us, relationship with God and relationship with one another. It is anything but periphery. Or let me put it another way. At the beginning of the Bible, Within the first two chapters, we face maybe one of the biggest theological quandaries or weirdnesses in the entire book. Genesis 1 and 2, we have this utopian state, heaven, and yet it's perfect, but it also says that it's not good. How can something be perfect and not good? But there is a not good within perfection, and it's that man was alone. Man walked with God in perfect relationship in the cool of the day, and yet he had no friendship, no other. And the Bible defines that as being alone. And so this talk is important because paradise isn't paradise without other people. When I actually wrote that sentence, I wrote it like this. For paradise to be, it must be we. Paradise is not paradise for me unless it's we. And then I realized I just read way too much Dr. Zeus to Thea. So I think what I'm trying to say in that is paradise is not paradise without other people. So that lie that we can attain to self-sufficiency isn't true. That's not the truth of the Christian Bible. We are called, even in paradise, to be in relationship with one another. And I think if we're honest, deep down, we all get that. As we start this talk, I just want to name some of the pain in the room. I think that since taking over as Guildford pastor here, probably the most frequent pain that I encounter is people who feel like they aren't in deeper relationship with people here as they wish that they would be. And I want to say that I see that and I hear that. And as a team, we talk about that. And I'm not going to say that this talk will answer that because it won't. But hopefully what this talk might do is give us some tools and some language to press deeper into friendships with one another. Because we have a profound inheritance in all of this. Harry Lutado, in his book, Destroyer of the Gods, looks at what he calls the social project of the church, the early church. And basically, he comes to his research with this question. How, in the early days of the church, 
On one side, the Christians were being killed, crucified, ridiculed, thrown into the gladiator arenas to be eaten by animals and killed by gladiators. How on one side was that happening publicly, but on the other side, the Roman Empire just could not stop the growth of the early church? So take that to one individual. One individual on one day will see the Christians being killed and the very next day will think, I want to join that community. And he leaves aside the sort of supernatural encountering of the risen Jesus for a second. And he says that there are a number of factors that made the Christian community so unprecedented, so beautiful, so compelling that the allure of joining it was greater than the fear of death. And the factors that he pulls out are, it was unprecedented, it was never before seen, a community that crossed such social and racial and ethical boundaries. Never before had there been a community that together had had such diverse people coming together to be part of its ranks, number one. Number two, it was a community of forgiveness in a culture of honour and shame. Now, in honour and shame, vengeance is expected, almost required, and let the Christian community, despite being persecuted, being violently attacked, they talked about forgiveness and love. Two. Number three, they cared for the poor. Not just their poor, but even the Roman poor. So three of the features that made the Christian community so compelling that it was greater to be a part of it and fear death than to be on the outside of it were to do with community. Now let's strip community, the word away, because I think it gets all a little abstract in Christian circles. Friendship. The way that they were friends with one another was so compelling so beautiful, so profound, that every way the Roman Empire tried to shut it down, it just kept on growing and growing and growing and growing. That is the high call on the church. And just before we jump into some of these proverbs, two of the great thinkers... Um, Ralph Waldo Emerson, the great American philosopher, and C.S. Lewis, in their great writings on friendship, they talk about the foundation of friendship. And they pull out something which I think is really important for us and explains why the Christian community can be so compelling. They put it like this. Let's start with Emerson. He says this in his essay, simply entitled Friendship. Friendship does not ask, do you love me? so much as, do you see the same truth? Are you passionate about the same thing? And then C.S. Lewis in his masterpiece, Four Loves. He picks up on Emerson's idea and he says this. He says, we picture lovers face to face, but friends side by side. Their eyes look ahead. That is why people who simply want to make friends never seem to make any. The very condition of having friends is that we should want something else besides friends. Were the truthful answer to the question, do you see the same truth? It would be, I see nothing. And I don't care about the truth. 
I only want a friend. But no friendship can arise, though affection may be. There would be nothing for the friendship to be about. And friendship must be about something. Those who have nothing can share nothing. Those who are going nowhere can have no fellow travellers. So what Emerson and Lewis trying to say? They're trying to say that friendship isn't about eye to eye. It's about side by side. It's about shoulder to shoulder. And this is one of the reasons why the church works, right? We don't gather around each other. We gather around the presence of God. We aren't eye by eye looking at the other person where our differences and our preferences and our stories can become so big they become divisive. No, we're shoulder to shoulder, not thinking about our differences, but joined in our commonality around the presence of God and the vision to see his kingdom come on earth. Have you ever thought about the grace it would need to bring this many different stories, experiences, worldview, preferences together? It doesn't work if we gather eye to eye, but it gathers if we but it works if we gather shoulder to shoulder, standing next to each other, compelled not by our differences, but compelled by the presence of the God that unites us and allows Jesus to make this audacious claim. You won't just be friends, you will be family. Unprecedented family. Never before seen, drawing so many different stories and people and classes and races together. That is the high call on the church. And paradoxically, as we form friendships shoulder to shoulder, we form something as strong as family. That is what Proverbs tells us. So, as we jump in with that foundation into the book of Proverbs... Scripture is clear that the importance, scripture is clear on the importance of friendship for flourishing. It kind of sums it up like this fools perish because of lack of friends or poorly chosen friends. Or the famous quote, which I actually said was Ronnie. Mel Conan, but it's actually not him. It was a guy called Dan Penner. But he put it like this. Show me your friends and I will show you your future. Show me your friends and I will show you your future. One of the wisdom books of the Bible, Job, one of the major themes is all about the fact that Job just didn't have wise friends. They didn't speak wisdom to him. They didn't lead him to life. They led him to deception. It's one of the themes. And so we are called to develop, to make to keep and to be great friends to one another. And so I came to this with the question, what is the anatomy of a godly friend? Or what is the anatomy of a wise friend? Like if you were to cut them up, you were to look inside, what postures, what attitudes and what actions would you find? And I think there are some. And we're going to look at those. But a quick caveat before we do. You can either come to this talk as a doctor or as a patient. I would suggest we all come as a patient, right? This is not to diagnose all of your friends and tell them why they're being bad. Like, that is not the goal of this talk. It probably won't go well for you. 
This is about coming as a patient. Like where can we hold a mirror up to ourselves and see areas for us to grow? For us to be better friends to one another. So let's jump in. Proverbs 17.17 says this. A friend loves at all times and a brother is born for a time of adversity. A friend loves at all times. They are consistent. Their love, their commitment doesn't turn on and off. They're not around for the good times and then gone in the bad. It obviously means that they love through all kinds of times. The ups and the downs, the rough and the smooth, they are there. A pillar that you can rely on. And this is an important starting point because everywhere, everything else we're going to look at If a friend loves at all times, it has to be a manifestation of love. And let's remember the biblical definition of love is other-focused, self-sacrificial love. It's not a feeling. It's a choice. It's a choice to put the other person first. And a friend does that at all times. The author Brennan Manning has written some of the most profound spiritual books that I've read. His spirituality and his books profoundly shaped my walk with Jesus in my teens and early 20s. Show me your hands if anyone's read anything by Ragamuff, uh, by Brennan Manning. Yeah, so he's written books. The books that shaped me were Ragamuffin Gospel, Abba's Child and Ruthless Trust. And Brennan Manning was a Franciscan priest who quickly developed an impressive ministry. He was well sought after, speaking around the world because he was a brilliant orator and a profound storyteller. But he was also the son of an alcoholic father. And he had always dealt with a propensity towards alcohol. But by the summer of 1973, the pressures of a growing ministry and a family back at home became so great that what was always a dirty little secret became a full-fledged addiction that controlled his body and his mind. And in the summer of 1973, he lost his family, he lost his ministry, he lost his home, and he lost all of his friends. And he tells the story of for 18 months living rough on the street, sleeping in doorways and under bridges, begging for a quart of vodka. And he says during that time, he lost everything, except for one man, Paul Sheldon. At the time, Brennan Manning was homeless in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. But an old friend, Paul Sheldon, heard about his situation when he was living in Mobile, Alabama, some 700 miles away. And during those 18 months... Paul Sheldon paid every other weekend to fly 700 miles from Mobile, Alabama to Fort Lauderdale, Florida to sit on the street with Brennan Manning. He didn't lecture him. He didn't critique him. He came with one simple message. I love you, Brennan, and you're going to be okay. And Brennan Manning, when he tells this story, when I heard him tell this story, he said, during those 18 months, Paul Sheldon was the face of Jesus for me. Now, those books that I mentioned, 
bestsellers that have profoundly shaped many people were written in 1990, 1994, and 2000. Brennan Manning overcame his addiction. He restarted his ministry, and he wrote some of the most profound books on the grace of God that I've read. And I sometimes wonder if in heaven I'll meet Paul Sheldon and say thank you. Because a friend loves at all times. And a brother is born for a time of adversity. So the next ones I think come in pairs. So often in Proverbs, wisdom is held in tension. And so how do we love? What does the shape of our love look like? And I'd say this. A friend loves through what they cover and a friend loves through what they confront. And there's some proverbs to go with those. It's the next slide. Whoever would foster love covers over an offence, but whoever repeats the matter separates close friends. So there's something here about a posture of grace and forgiveness. It's the willingness to bend and to stoop, to not always being the critic, not always being the one that looks to pick faults, but the one who is patient and gives people slack. I don't know if you've noticed, but offence is an awfully strong currency in the world today. There's almost nothing as powerful as saying, I'm offended. But interestingly, in the kingdom economy, you foster love when you cover over an offence. And I love that language, foster. Foster speaks of raising something with care and consideration to allow it to flourish and survive. And so when we cover over an offence, what we do is we allow our friendship, our relationship to flourish and survive. But then, at the same time, friends love through what they confront. Wait, wait, so does a godly friend cover or does a godly friend confront? Yep. Well, how do you know which one? Wisdom. It's like the two ends on a bow of a bow and arrow. The only way a bow works is that it's held in tension. It's the tension that allows the arrow to fly. And I think Proverbs does the same thing. These truths are held in tension together. But they love through what they confront. Faithful are the wounds of a friend and deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. And so this verse obviously makes us think about accountability. Like as Christians, we like to talk about accountability a lot. And just a few points on accountability. One, fundamentally, accountability, it's even in the word, is about holding people to account on their what? Ability. Not their disability, not their lack of ability, not their mistakes, their ability. Or to put it like this, accountability truly works when you believe in the vision of who someone is becoming. Accountability is not about putting someone down, it's about calling someone up. I think that the Netflix um, blockbuster recently uh, knives out the glass onion. The main character, Benoit Blanc, put it brilliantly when he said this, it's a dangerous thing to mistake, to mistake thinking without thought for speaking the truth. It's good, isn't it? It's 
It's a dangerous thing to mistake speaking without care for speaking the truth. Too often, we speak without care and call it accountability. What accountability is about a commitment to the vision of who someone is becoming and choosing in love to speak the truth and call them up to something better. But equally, trying to be the patient and not the doctor here, how much permission do we give people to speak into our lives? Like if someone comes to us with a difficult word, how often do they get met with defensiveness, criticism, calls of being disloyal, uncaring or ununderstanding? When was the last time someone came to say something to you and you said, thank you for caring enough about me to say that? I am so grateful. You know, it was early on in being a dad, I realized that my best wasn't good enough for my kids. It just wasn't good enough for how much I loved them. I'm like, my best is not good enough for my kids. But the beauty of being part of the church is when I looked around and I thought, well, my best, but with Peter's best, and my best with Matt's best, and my best with Iswai and Anne's best, that might just be good enough. And part of the beauty of that is being in the church is they get to speak into Thea and Noah's life. But the other thing is I get to live in the protection of knowing that when I'm being an idiot, they're going to call me out on it. They provide the safety blanket around who I am, around my thoughts and my actions and my soul. People who have got the permission to speak into my life, to call me to more, to hold me to account on my ability. And so... Wise friends know when to cover and wise friends know when to confront. And the last two, wise friends know what to say and wise friends know what they don't say. So the first one, the proverb there. Death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruit. Encouragement is so important. To my knowledge, no one's ever overdosed on encouragement. And we live in scary times, right? Encouragement, literally, the definition of it is giving someone the gift of courage. It's that, the privilege. We get to come here and we get to give people, through our words, the gift of courage. Just imagine this. Imagine if every single person here made a commitment today that they're going to become the most encouraging person they know. Imagine turning up to that church on a Sunday. Imagine being at that collective midweek. It would be powerful, wouldn't it? You just come in with a whole load of people who believe in you and speak life into you. Believe in the vision of who you're becoming. Give you the gift of courage every week. That would be a beautiful community to be a part of. And there is no middle road in this proverb. It's stark. It's life or it's death. And so for us, we're going to look at speech more fully in a couple of weeks. But just to say today... Every time someone encounters you, when you speak to them, you either lead them into life or you can lead them into death. Let's lead people into life. And also, friends know what they don't say. A perverse person stirs up conflict and a gossip separates close friends. Gossip is cancerous to a community like ours. And by that, I mean... It's cancerous because it grows and grows and grows 
and brings death as it does. We have a group of people starting the welcome course, and as we look through the values, on week three we look at play, like our values, pray, play and obey, play, and we talk about community. And we always talk about Matthew 18, where Jesus is very clear, and he says, if you've got an issue with someone, go and talk to them about it. If that doesn't work, feel free to take others, get other people involved, but in the first instance, go and talk to them. I'm going to be honest, I think this is one of the verses in the Bible that we so easily spiritualize our disobedience. What we do is we find every way that verse doesn't apply to this situation, and we should actually get loads of people involved, right? That person only really responds to authority, so I need to speak to a leader about it. I don't know if I'm right, so if I talk to three or four people, then I'll just make sure that it's right for me to talk to them first. Right? We all do it, because it's hard and it's awkward to go and talk to someone. But Jesus is clear. The only way that we can be a community that stand together, that have deep friendships, that are known by our love, is if we talk to each other, not about each other. If we talk to each other and not about each other. And so, that's my list as we're coming into land. What is the anatomy of a good, wise friend? Well, first of all, a friend loves at all times. Secondly, a friend loves through what they cover and a friend loves through what they confront. And thirdly, a friend loves through what they say and loves through what they don't say. And so I just want to read out this list of questions to you. I'm aware unless you're gifted in Anglo-Saxon typography, it can be hard to read this slide. Um, I was given this font, it's brand guidelines, so, you know. Let me just read them out to you. Number one, and, you know, the Psalms talk about, they say, Spirit, search me and know me. I just want to encourage you now, like, why didn't you for a moment, just with the Spirit, be so easy to just be impacted by this word, but then go out. Like, just take a moment right now to really think through these questions. Think through what the Spirit might be saying. Number one, who might you need to forgive today? Number two, who might you need to apologize to today? Number three, who might need your encouragement today? Number four, if you're honest, who might need you to love who might you need to lovingly confront this week? Number five, who is someone that you could just invite for a meal this week? And then the last one, I just want to encourage you. We're aware it's not easy forming friendships in a growing community like this. But talking about being shoulder to shoulder, where could you consider joining a team or finally joining a collective? Right? This isn't a way for us to just get more people to help out with kids, although we would love that. Um, there is something profound about shoulder to shoulder, serving together to form friendships. I don't know if Andrew's here. I remember having a meet with Andrew, and he was like, when he joined Emmaus, he was surprised by how little he got asked to serve. And he said it was sad, because serving on a team in his previous church, he developed friendships that will be lifelong friendships for him. There is something about serving shoulder to shoulder, 
around a vision that helps to form friendships. So those are the questions. But what we're going to do now is we're going to go into communion together. And communion is interesting, isn't it? It's like this gift that God gave us, but he gave us together. It isn't something that we're called to do just between us and God. It's a meal that we come shoulder to shoulder. We hand each other the bread and the wine. And it is a gift that both forms us into a family and reminds us of our family with God. And so we're going to come and Peter's going to lead us into communion. But there's always a moment in communion where we encourage you to think through ways that you might have sinned against God, but ways that you might have sinned against others. And I'd like you to take that extra seriously today in light of everything we've said. And just as Peter comes up, I want to read one final verse from the words of Jesus because I think that no other moment in Scripture is so striking in displaying the importance of relationships together than these words of Jesus in Matthew 5.23. I can read it if it doesn't come up, but there there is a line there. I'm going to read it from the message version. This is how I want you to conduct yourselves in these matters. If you enter the place of worship and, about to make an offering, you suddenly remember a grudge a friend has against you, abandon your offering. Leave immediately. Go to this friend and make things right. Then, and only then, come back and work things out with God. The goal of preaching is rarely that people would get up and leave. But maybe today, that's the most godly response. Because that's what Jesus said. Can I pray for you? Lord Jesus, God, we thank you that at the centre of everything, we look to you three in one. Perfect community, perfect harmony. Lord, we thank you for our inheritance, Lord Jesus, our inheritance of being a community and a family so compelling, so different, so strange and so beautiful that the invitation to become part of it was greater than the fear of death. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray that as we study Proverbs, as we look to become wise, would you help us to be people who know how to love at all times, how to cover when we need to cover and how to confront when we need to confront. How to bring life with our words and to step away from words that bring death. And Lord Jesus, I pray that you would give us the courage to be the community you're calling us into. I pray for everyone here, Lord Jesus, that feels the pain of not having as deep friendships as they wish they did. Lord, I pray that you begin to form us Would you open doors? Would you help us to have eyes that look beyond just our little circle that we would call other people deeper into friendship? Lord, we hear your words that we will be known by our love for one another. God, would you help us to love so well that all of Guildford would look at these people and say, wow, they've touched something. We thank you, God. Amen.
Hopefully you've all got your little uh, communion cup. If you don't, there, there are some at the back, so feel free to go and grab one. And also, just because someone gets caught out every time, I will specifically tell you at the moment to take the bread and the wine. There's a bit that sounds like you should take it near the start. Wait until after the Lord's Prayer. I've certainly been caught out enough times. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take a moment now to reflect on all that Adam has called us to consider. Remembering that if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Let's take a moment now.